Hello everyone and welcome back to Alien Crash Site. We have a really fun one for you all today. This week I had the pleasure of co-interviewing Gary Benger about his recently published speculative fiction novel called Unfettered Journey. I, along with Complexity podcast host Michael Garfield, dive into the themes that Gary explores about humanity's not-so-distant future, as this book is set only about 120 years from today, which is two, arguably one, generation from now, which is kind of nice, not too distant to engage comfortably with. And we will explore his thoughts on technological development and its relation to our own development, the need for internal motivation in all of our exploratory endeavors, and the power that reflection has for society at large. In a past life, Gary had a very successful career in Silicon Valley, where he led a variety of tech companies, including eBay, which you may have heard of. He served as the CFO, and he took the company public. But in a fantastic turn, or return, we should say, he decided that his Harvard MBA just wasn't enough, so he went back to school to study astrophysics and philosophy, and specifically philosophy of mind. He's been pursuing his true purpose, as he calls it, ever since. Now, in addition to writing fiction, he is raising bees, he is making wine, he is working to extend science education to children of all ages, and, I guess most fittingly, he serves on the Santa Fe Institute's Board of Trustees. So I want to give you all a fair warning. Michael and I do discuss aspects of this book in this interview, but we both took care to skirt any crucial plot details that would ruin the fun for all of you. This is a no-spoilers approach to the larger themes at stake in this narrative exploration. Therefore, if you want to pick up Unfettered Journey for your holiday reading, you can. I believe, <laughs> I believe you're good to go. If anything, this interview will provide a foundation for the protagonist's, quote, unfettered journey. So with that all laid out, let's gear up for another adventure into the zone. My name is Caitlin McShay. This is Alien Crash Site. Before we approach that golden sphere, we need to ensure that we're properly driven. Silence the external stimuli that surrounds you and turn within. Without honest resolve and self-motivated intention, we'll only manifest great dangers indeed. It's a pleasure to have you on Complexity and Alien, Alien Crash, Crash Site. Site. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael and Caitlin, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for um, inviting me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Caitlin, do you want to kick this off? Well, it depends on which direction you want to go. Do we want to link it from SFI and go outward? Do we want to start with Gary and come back to Complexity? I think, yeah, I think let's start with the the autobiography piece. Great. Yeah, so so like the question would be then, Gary... Who are you? <laughs> what is your relationship to SFI and what brought you here? You know, like okay. what, what is the road that took you into your relationship, uh, which is, you know, some might argue a property, but certainly <laughs> we won't go there yet. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've um, I've been in uh, technology for over 30 years. Um, I did a whole series of startups in uh, biosciences in computer uh, chip design, in the internet, um, uh, high-tech windmills, so lots and lots of technologies I had the fortune to participate in. I took eBay public. Uh, I was chief financial officer 20 years ago, and we grew that uh, company to over $100 billion in stuff sold and thousands of employees. And then I, I then uh, moved on to other things like uh, philanthropy and then now being a writer. And uh, as part of eBay, I uh, came in touch with uh, Santa Fe Institute. Pierre Omidyar, who's um, been an emeritus member of the board for a long time, uh, encouraged me to join. And I've been um, associated with the, uh, with the Institute all those years and had a delightful time um, just getting deep in the science. I think it's complexity sciences is fabulous. So, so that's my relationship there. Um, as I said, I, I turned to uh, philanthropy and then... Um, I went back to school. I backfilled an astrophysics degree. I got interested in philosophy. I backfilled a philosophy degree. Um, I got a master's in philosophy focused on uh, theory of mind. And, uh, and then I was interested in getting some of those ideas about um, human consciousness 
sort of out into a bigger audience. You know, you know, you know, what is what is consciousness? What is that I that's at the center of you, Caitlin? You know, what is that really? And so those kinds of uh, questions um, uh, were things that I focused on thinking about for over a decade. And uh, and to make those ideas more accessible, I wrote this book. <laughs> so uh, the book is Unfettered Journey, and uh, that's been out now um, about a year. And the book has won six awards, and um, so I'm very pleased with the reception. It's been going great. So um, the summary is I'm sort of a technologist, um, uh, a wannabe philosopher, and, uh, you know, new writer. So may I ask, uh, because I, I am very fascinated by this history, my background is also in philosophy. And so even though I can't really get my head around the foundational limits at any of the models that any of our researchers are presenting in seminars about intelligence or life, I don't ever feel like I'm completely excluded from the conversation. And so I wonder if maybe there was a particular incident, how does one shift and it's a big shift from technological development and finance and the intersection of technology to a philosophical exploration of consciousness and then eventually speculative fiction. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's a shift. I've actually been <laughs> thinking about some of these ideas for 30 years. And so once uh, I decided that I've done the, uh, the uh, technology route for for long enough, you know, I like to say I had lots of at-bats. <laughs> and so uh, after I did that, um, I actually had the chance to go back to uh, explore some things that I've been fascinated uh, with my entire life. So no, it wasn't really a shift. And um, and I had the good fortune to be able to go deep on those um, those ideas, so. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's kind of two chunks that I really want to discuss here because the and the copy of the book that I'm holding uh, has not only your science fiction in it, but it has a rather comprehensive philosophical appendix in which you explore this stuff in a bit more of a formal way. And I'd like to spend some time on on both of these. Uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe it makes sense to start. I don't know. What What do you guys? I, th I think we start with the novel think? because because okay. I don't want any of our audience to fall asleep quickly. The uh, the you know philosophy itself is uh, you know one of the oldest um, fields, um, and um, and the conversations can get very convoluted, and uh, the appendices uh, is dressed more toward that audience. Okay. Uh, the uh, the appendices are entitled Philosophical Explorations on Time, Ontology, and the Nature of Mind. And so there are three papers that cover those three topics. And those, um, quite honestly, those ideas are what I hope to get to a larger audience. And so the novel is a way to make some of those ideas accessible. So, um, and... Uh, and quite honestly, I, you know, I'm I'm a I, I'm a believer in the scientific method, hands down, and I think that um, philosophers um, do not talk enough with scientists. I mean, we we've had uh, Dan Dennett come to the San Fe Institute. Delighted to have that. He spent some um, some uh, time there, several months. Uh, but in general, uh, philosophers don't talk to mathematicians or physicists. And I think it's because they can't do the math. You know, if you can't do the profound math, the very difficult math, then, then you go into philosophy. But, but, but and and to to be at the front end of theoretical physics, you have to do the math. So much of that conversation, I think, is is predicated on the fact that mathematics has proven, because of its elegance, to explain the world. And, you know, no one knows why that's true. Um, uh, uh, Wigner, once uh, in a famous, very short paper, talks about the, the basically the surprising effect of mathematical um, knowledge in the natural sciences, right? And why is that? Why does math, you find an elegant equation, and then you find that it relates to the real world. Why is it that if you follow that trail of the mathematics, you tend to find that the right empirical tests to find out the right answer that opens up how nature works. That is just astonishing. And, you know, we, we have no idea why, but so, um, 
so at the at the at the front end of of um, theoretical physics, you know, string theory. We've been looking at three, string theory for 30 years, and there are lots of crazy hypotheses out there, but uh, but uh, none of them um, um, really. Um, are testable yet, right? So, and yet, yet we spend enormous amount of our physics, theoretical physics, working on those ideas that we can't test. Uh, and that's because we continue to follow Wigner's um, intuition, but that doesn't help us, right? So, so, so to summarize, philosophers and physicists don't talk to each other, and there's a gulf there. And so, um, I think there's some place that you can have a conversation in that interspace. Definitely. I mean, you know, reading this piece for me hooked back pretty cleanly to the conversation that we had with David Kinney on this show. You know, David being a, a formal epistemologist at SFI, a rare beast <laughs> indeed, but, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, for that reason, especially valuable, I think. And and uh, your pieces on uh, ontological relations and on the, the nature of mind and time, I think really uh, illuminated for me some of the stuff that we were talking about in his own work on, on causal networks. But before we get there, I think you're right to let's, let's start, let's start in the work of science fiction and without like ruining plot mm. for people, you know, I, I would like to, to engage with you a little bit on the nature of world building, because, you know, Caitlin through this, uh, you know, curated interplanetary festival and, and curated this, mm -hmm. this awesome panel in 2019 on world building, where we had a bunch of science fiction authors together on, on stage talking about it in, in a way that, you know, reflected through the SFI lens makes the work of writing fiction look like the design of parameters in an agent based model. Ah, so to, yes. to set something <laughs> to set something forward in time, you know, in 2161, you're coming in with a set of of uh, basically like Bayesian priors, you know, like assumptions okay, about the okay. world as it is. Okay. And then uh, creating a, an, a, a verbal model, a device, and then letting it run is kind of how I understood the okay, process so, here. So, uh, so you mentioned the panel, and I, I hope I'm not going to diss those <laughs> participants because I might have a slightly different idea on this. But let's talk about the modeling thing. So, as we know about agent-based models, if you, you, they typically have you know agents run by simple set of 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 of, um, of rules, and those rules then you put in motion and you see what happens. But we know that if you pick crazy rules or wrong rules, then they quickly grind to a halt. They give you no information. So it's important to pick those rules carefully. And I think if you look at across, um, you know, genre science fiction these days, there's so much dystopian sci-fi out there these days. It's so genre. And what I think happens is um, writers tend to pick some particular idea and then they take it to the absurd extreme. So then we have, and that's where the conversation has fallen into is those uh, extremes. And I take a different tact is I think that we we are better served to use a hard science framework for how this works. You know, we can take the engineering today and what we know, and we can take uh, run run that forward and we can be, we can come up with highly likely scenarios. And I think we should focus on those. So, because, um, you know, then you're just having a conversation that is not very helpful because I think running those forward, we have some real problems to solve and we should focus on those problems. So, um, so that's my take on how one should do that. And, and let's, let's take the, you know, utopian dystopian future. Um, you know, humans have evolved with certain kinds of characteristics like altruism, like hope. And these are complex systems, of course. And as humankind moves forward, I think those are going to mitigate some of our worst um, characteristics. Um, and, you know, yes, we've evolved to be competitive. We have some deep, dark, um, you know, aspects. Um, our fellow writer Cormac McCarthy on our on Santa Fe board, he explores those very, very deeply and disturbingly in many cases. I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think um, 
I think the reality of what our future looks like is somewhere in between. And so that's what I explore. So I have a hard science view. So maybe let me give you a couple examples if we can explore my world building and how that agent-based model moves forward. So let's take up to two or three. Okay, I think that for this next century, the two largest technologies that will drive everything about humankind are bioscience and AI and robotics, okay? But I will say that though bioscience will have a tremendous impact on human life, that in 100 years, in many ways, we won't notice, <laughs> okay? <laughs> if you went back to the 1950s, they still had polio, right? We don't have polio now, but, you know, we, we, we live, you know, um, you know, 10 or 20 years longer than we did before um, and, and, and live with greater health, but we don't notice it. We expect that to be normal. And it's, I think, you know, in 100 years, 150 years, will we cure cancer? I think I think yes, um, you know, um, uh, we'll, we'll fix a lot of these things. Um, our, our fellow board members, uh, um, uh, Jeffrey West wrote his book on scale and uh, he explores that the end of that uh, parameter. And I think he suggests that if we cure all of cancer, we will add to the uh, human lifespan about six years. If we cure all of the heart disease related um, ailments, we'll add on the order of three or four years. And then you take next year down, you pick one or two. So order of it will add a decade to the median lifespan by fixing all those things. So this will take a long time. Um, do I think that um, humans will live forever? No. You know, um, will we live a lot longer? Yes, I think so. Um, so that will happen. That's so. That's one. Um, I think that's what's that's what um, bioscience will do. Let's move to the second one. Um, AI and robotics. I have a slightly more conservative view than lots. Um, you know, there are there are forecasts. You know, we see Boston Dynamics. The we see the robots. Um, you know, dancing with Mick Jagger. We see them um, shooting uh, free throws from the center line on the court during the Olympics and making perfect baskets. And we think, wow, this is just around the corner, right? Um, uh, I think that this is going to take a lot longer. It's more akin to the automobile, you know, which basically took a decade, uh, a century to get to the cars that we know today. You know, we, yeah, Henry Ford um, was around a, a century ago, but you know, the cars that we have today with all the electronics, um, with the road systems, the infrastructure that needed was needed with the, um, the legal systems and insurance issues and social issues of interfacing with these automobiles that kill us took a long time. And so I think that's true about um, AI and robotics. But I think it's highly likely that we in 140 years um, will have robots walking among us, okay? And, and why is that? Because, um, because we've got trillions of dollars of infrastructure that is human-sized, right? Um, and so, um, and, and yet we, there's enormous number of reasons why for economic reasons, that will continue to be developed. And so that's a highly likely thing to happen. So are you disagreeing that in 140 years we'll have robots walking around? Um, Can I just make a remark about that claim? Um, quite often when we think about the robotic future in science fiction, it's human-sized, roughly human-shaped robots walking around. And I always took that to be a sort of anthropomorphic lack of imagination. So this infrastructure posit that you make is really interesting to me because of course, we wouldn't want to engineer new societies to accommodate whatever the age, the, the AI is that, you know, it, it seems we still have roads, we still have doorways, we still have elevators. And so yes, that, yes. Yeah. that suggestion as to why human shaped things will exist among us is the most persuasive I've heard so far. So I do like okay. it. Go ahead, Mike. Oh yeah. I was going to say, if I may, you know, just that, uh, Yes, as far as pulling in a complex systems principle of path dependency or canalization or entrenchment, then these are the 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 niche defines what fills the niche, right? Exactly. But you know, I'm also thinking about uh, uh, Robin Hanson, you know, who wrote this book Age of M, in which he's looking at it. Yes. Uh, and starting from a kind of a similar place, you know, he's, he's looking at it in a very Jeffrey West kind of way okay. and, and arguing that, you know, following a, a you know, a, a Moore's law kind of arms race to the fast that the, that robotics are going to get smaller and smaller and faster and faster. And then they will 
have basically leverage over things operating on the human scale in the same way that humans basically eradicated okay. megafauna. So I'm curious I've, how I've, you... I've, I've, I've yeah. read M and I put that into my, you know, absurd end of the okay. spectrum. And uh, because, you know, he, he imagines this sort of merging between computers and, and humans, AIs and humans, in a way that I just think is um, absurd, quite honestly. And in fact, um, in, in terms of my, my scenarios, there's a couple devices that we have in 140 years. And I think when people first read them, they might think, oh, that's a little weird. Um, she's Single Magazine wrote that this future feels eerily realistic. And I think that's a fair thing. So as an example, um, you carry your iPhone around, right? Um, you're, 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 you can, might use Siri, right? Uh, we connect to the internet through the cloud, right? Uh, so in 140 years, can you imagine this? Um, that you have a chip in your head um, and that you have a corneal implant that can be like a little screen and you have something called a nest, a neural to external systems transmitter, which is basically on the chip. And it connects you to the, to the, you know, to the, the net, the cloud at the time. And so you can talk to it. You could just say, you know, where's the closest pizza shop? <laughs> and what it does is, you know, it downloads it and it point, it paints uh, using an ARMO and uh, augmented reality map overlay. It points a little um, map on your cornea and you can just follow the little red line to find the pizza shop. Those sorts of things, right? So essentially, um, you've got something that we already have, and it sounds weird that you would get a chip in your head, but, you know, I think that will happen. Okay, but what are the limits? Um, Elon Musk, uh, you know, he has this Neuralink, and he was demonstrating that. Um, I think that that is going to be quite limited because it's taken a million years of evolution to, to evolve our vision, our hearing. You know, the uh, V1 in our brain takes up the size in our brain is a, of a total cat's brain, okay? It's huge. And those are the ways that we'll interface with the world. And um, so I don't, I don't, you know, and those are working at chemical speeds, okay? Very, very slow. Uh, already our chips are, you know, you know, millions of times orders of magnitude faster than our human. We will not make that work very well. So I don't think we're gonna have realistic sort of cyborgs and um, yes, we'll have we'll have artificial limbs, and that will continue. But getting the brain to interface is something I just don't think is going to happen. And that's where I think we're off in the crazy land of of of, of forecasting. So, well, I mean, we already have like high frequency trading algorithms that exert weird leverage over the economy. That like you know these things happen, mm -hmm. and then we look back on them ten years later, and we still don't understand. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I mean, the, I'm, I'm curious how else you see nonlinearities and this kind of thing fitting into, into this world okay, building, so, I mean, given especially okay. that you've got this, you know, your, your, your world takes place after climate change and wars that precipitate out of climate change. So that, yes. that has to figure into your timeline for tech development and the, uh, the evolution of of social okay. hierarchy and so on. So, yeah. so, so the, 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 the conceit of the timeline is, is that, you know, around the year 2100, we have the climate wars fought over uh, resources, et cetera. And as a result of that, we need to rebuild certain things. And um, the rebuilding is accomplished a lot by robots, you know, taking the rest of the jobs and robots are building robots. And, you know, so in 2161, uh, we still have lots of stuff. So, so you know, let me point on two things economically, how I get there. Um, the first, um, just before COVID, there was a workshop at the Santa Fe Institute uh, with the title AI in the Barrier of Meaning. And I attended that and a lot of AI scientists were down there. Melanie Mitchell, uh, who you just had on an earlier podcast and, and many others. And they were fairly uh, cynical about how fast this would develop. There, there was one presentation that I that I loved. It talked about the disappearance of jobs as we have more automation. And so the, the image was of a topology landscape, you know, with hills and valleys. And water rising was the analogy for jobs going away. And so the question was, what jobs disappear first, you know, and what? What's on the top of the hills? Well, top of the hills might be your jobs, you know, podcasting. Right? <laughs> it's very hard to do that. Um, and, and I argue that one of those jobs is roofer, okay? Because the guy that climbs up on the shingles with the, you know, with, on the roof with a bunch of shingles and tacks in place, that's really hard to automate. 
but that eventually, because the roofers will be making $400,000 a year, that too will be automated. And, and that's the robots walking around when we have a general purpose robot on a standard chassis, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually that will happen. And when that happened, it's all over in the sense that the vast majority of what we think of jobs today will be gone. Hopefully many will be replaced, but I think, I think again, that's going to happen. That is a highly likely output outcome. We are today, we have increasing automation and we're gonna to get to a place where we have lots of robots, robots making robots and very few jobs. And we have to figure out how in this century we cross that economic chasm and keep a society, have a society that is operational, that, that works. And, and that's one of our big hard science challenges um, in the world, I think. So could I ask about, I mean, you made the, the very complimentary example of the podcast <laughs> interviewer uh, being an exception to this sort of loss of job. But it seems like that example is a, is a stark division between something like labor and something like thought. And I think a lot of this book and a lot of your interest and that very symposium about the barrier of meaning in AI still protects maybe the jobs for those who think. Um, but I don't know if you think that maybe 250 years, 300 years will GPT-3 our way out of thought. I don't know. But I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what kinds of positions or what kinds of approaches to existence in the world are safe from automation, in your opinion? I think that's hard. Um, um, and if you look at the book, there are some what I'll call really cool jobs. There's a job, um, you know, um, running um, an orbital base circling the moon, uh, whose mission is to um, lead humankind's efforts to explore exoplanets, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, but, you know, those are cool jobs. We would love to have those jobs. I think it's interesting, if you think about this future, um, it's a future where maybe having a job is a privilege Okay, uh, and and I think irrespective of the creative pursuits that we're talking about, um, um, there will be too much output and it will be hard, just as today we have a hard time absorbing all of the content, right? Um, it's harder to convince people to read a book today because they're constantly being interrupted with their attention taken by all kinds of things. And so, uh, and so the key then question is, how do we find purpose as individuals when, you know, you may be making a lot of stuff, but no one's reading your poetry, okay? <laughs> and and there aren't, and, the, the, and the, the fun, cool jobs of actually doing something in the real world are limited. And and there's tremendous competition for those. So, And, and this is likely, okay, here's an interesting economic fact. Um, if you just take, I've modeled the, um, the US GDP and the world uh, GDP, going forward to the year 2161, looking at current uh, growth rates for over the average of the last 20, 30 years. And it turns out by that year, we'll have 10 to 20 times as much stuff per person as we do now. So we'll have a lot of stuff and we have robots making robots. And now there's the, I think, a enormous social question. And this is a question that is you know, cr crossing that chasm. How do we get there? Um, who owns the robot factories? This is the first time in humankind that, um, in human history, that we will not be faced with those questions of, you know, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, food, shelter, clothing. There'll be lots of stuff. And so here, here I am. I'm a, I'm a, I mean, you know, I'm a bona fide capitalist, right? Spent <laughs> my my career in technology, and yet. Um, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of the guaranteed wage, um, guaranteed income. And I think that it is not sustainable. It is not an, it's not an equilibrium point economically to have the ownership of the robot factories being owned by anyone except all of society. And so what I'm suggesting from a world building is that I really think this is highly likely and I think that we will be replacing our current economic system at some point by something else. And in terms of thinking about creating this sort of authentic world, as you described, is that thought that occurs to you a consequence of imagining a post-climate resource war? It seems like there has to be a sort of redistribution. 
No, actually not. I, that, that's a, that's, you know, there's a, there's, we have an enormous amount of concern about climate change rightly, right? Right. Um, I think the, the way I would look at it slightly differently is that this is a really long-term problem. This is, this is millennium. Okay. There was a podcast, um, excuse me, there was a, um, a Zoom um, workshop uh, for the Santa Fe Institute talking about climate change uh, about a, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the most telling uh, comment was um, the comment that geologists are starting to conclude that Greenland is lost. In other words, because the, the world is like a black body, okay, heat, just using that fundamental physics, if the world did not have any oceans, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere would already cause runaway heating. The fact that three quarters of the earth are oceans is a heat sink. But that heat sink means that we've put off the problem that's already been baked in. And that even if we do lots of really good things, we're still going to have this fundamental problem that will go on for many, many centuries. So, so um, what I've done in the book is make the very optimistic assumption that in 140 years, we'll kind of finally you know, get religion on this topic. We will figure out how to get to um, you know, a net negative carbon. We'll do carbon sequestration. We'll do all those things we need to do. We'll probably need to have um, you know, fusion, I think. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have uh, uh, you know, fission and fusion together. And still fu- fusion to make it practical is probably 50 years away if we're lucky. But fission and fusion, I mean, and to get rid of all carbon um, use, and and maybe we'll turn the corner on that. And in my book, I assume then that Venice is lost. Yeah. Okay. Uh, probably you know New Orleans is lost. Jakarta, they're already moving the capital to Sulawesi, right? Uh, and uh, you know Mumbai. So there'll be lots of dislocations, and I think that a lot of that is going to happen. But I'm optimistic that we get past this because of human ingenuity. So it's not easy. So that's the thesis of my book. It's sort of somewhat uh, on the border of utopian that we actually solve this, you know, existential problem. Mm-hmm. But, but, but again, that's looking for the, you know, what's the, uh, you know, there's lots of dystopian books that assume that, you know, have climate uh, disaster and we can't ever save ourselves. And then we're just um, down into just absolute calamity. So. Well, you know, one thing I found fairly believable, although I'd like to kind of, pick at it a little bit, if you don't mind, you know, <laughs> bring the, bring some, some scrutiny to this. You talk about the emergent caste system, the levels act that <laughs> yes. stratifies American society <laughs> <Yes>. into like a <laughs> hundred different, you know, this is your, this is your legally preordained uh, guild. And on one level, that's very believable because, you know, we've got recent research that kind of kind of sobering, disappointing research that was led by uh, Eliza Heinrich Mora, uh, Jeff West, Vicky Ch- Yang, Chris Kempis, and a couple other folks outside of SFI worked on this piece that showed that even though uh, the average per capita income grows faster than population in cities, the inequality grows even faster. And so actually more than wealth, what cities are generating is poverty. And so, you know, like, I kind of want to just like put a couple pieces together here. Um, okay, that's, I, I, yeah. I, I will, Michael, I'll totally agree yeah. with you on that one. Um, you know, that's basically, uh, I, I think that's not going to happen. And uh, so that was probably my one exception, but one needs <laughs> conflict to write a novel. Um, right. the, the conceit in the novel is because the U.S. has more of a focus on property rights, as this who owns the robot factories question is put to society, whereas other countries, as Mike, the economist says, uh, have found more egalitarian answers in the U.S., the oligarchs who own the those factories re- demanded a quid pro quo for you know giving them to society, and that was the set of laws that instituted something called the Levels Acts, where everyone's assigned a level from one at the top to 99 at the bottom, and supposedly it was merit-driven, and you could move up and down the levels and all that sort of thing. But in reality, there's a question of whether it was there were legacy and and, and so here's here's the question I was hoping to pose that, that with that is because one of the things that science fiction and speculative fiction does is frequently is looks at our own society. So, do we have levels today? Well, yes. 
The question I mean, that, is whether or not they're explicitly assigned or whether they're sort right. of emergent as a well, consequence of the lack well, of well, this, this gets to a really This gets to the yeah. question that I wanted to ask you, Gary, which what? is about, you know, the people, uh, a, a, a lot of people at SFI have scrutinized meritocracy and, yeah. you know, scrutinized also the, the idea in, in a way kind of similar to the ways that you, that you scrutinize uh, certain notions about there being sort of like universal time, you know, a mm -hmm. single past, yes. present and future okay. that's like a consistent non-relativistic time, you know, for all observers, there's, there's this question about economic value and the idea of a caste system, such as the levels in, in your book, I think uh, presupposes that we know what those, uh, you know, what constitutes uh, a meritocratic, you know, like, how do we quantify this? Okay. So, and, and so yes, just yes. one more little piece on that is that another SFI adjacent person, you know, historian Peter Turchin has this beautiful uh, blog entry on the, what he calls the double helix of inequality and, and uh, social health or social stability, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where he's saying basically, you know, the, the, the larger the gap between the rich and the poor, the more likely this whole thing is to implode. And you look at, you know, research and complex systems dating back to Bob May's 1972 piece on will a complex system be stable, where he's saying, you know, the, the more uh, edges in a network, the more opportunities there are for something to go wrong. You know, uh, Raisa D'Souza gave a great talk at this in our 2019 symposium. We'll link to in the show notes. So, so there's this 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 question that has to do with like how do we intentionally apply breaks so as to keep the the stratification that you're describing here from growing so large that it undermines its own uh, uh, like ability to encode merit, you know? Because okay. like right now we're seeing like all all the tokenization and fractionalization of everything in in web3 it just seems like what actually constitutes money or value is completely up for grabs now in a way it wasn't 10 years ago i'm curious okay. about all your thoughts on that okay so uh, I'll, I'll i'll i deal with um that topic in and and throwing it out there for for um conversation maybe in the example of dina taggart who's the character who is the the leader of the wise orbital base that I described earlier. She's got this fabulous job. She's this tremendous business kind of uh, leader, right? Um, you may notice that her last name resembles some character in a book, Taggart from Atlas Shrugged from Ayn Rand, okay? Yeah. Okay, so Ayn Rand's main character is Dagny Taggart, and she, um, and this is where, you know, in my study of philosophy, I think Ayn Rand has sort of uh, created a book that encapsulates her ideas, but from a moral perspective, she goes off the rails uh, because those characters, you know, lack any sense of um, understanding and compassion for an average person. They call for those makers are supreme and they can decide everything as opposed to everyone else who are the takers in that scenario. And Dina Taggart, <laughs> she, she, in a conversation with Joe, describes how, uh, 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 no, uh, you, you, you can't think of it that way. Because Joe says something that actually, and I'll give credit to uh, David Krakauer, uh, our uh, Senfei president. Uh, I stole the line from him once. And Joe says, wait a minute, doesn't one Einstein make a university? <laughs> the argument for, you know, the power of, you know, greatness, right? He's actually um, stating that. He actually says something, isn't it a story of uh, giants calling to their brothers, which is a line from Nietzsche. Okay. Again, this overman kind of theory. And Dina says, no, that's not right. Um, you know, we stand on the shoulders of the giants before us. Um, you know, even Tesla had people in his lab. Okay. And the, the, and the big uh, moral failure is hubris. And so that human society moves ahead because we work together in community and that's how we move ahead as a species. So um, that whole conversation that I'm trying to raise there is, is a conversation about how we as humans 
can get across this chasm. And I think it's based upon that need for community, notwithstanding the, the benefits of the Einstein. So, so. Well, to the point of research communities, and, and, and at this point, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm basically, I want to toss the ball to Caitlin, because this is where I feel the alien crash site themes really start to take over. But okay. uh, you've got these two, two spaces in the geography of your story that seem very familiar to those of us working at SFI, one being Lone Mountain College, you know, this, this location where your protagonist takes his sabbatical to, to uh, cool his heels and think about artificial consciousness. And determinism and, then, and randomness yes. and the order of consciousness. Right. Yes. And then there's the zone, which is this uh, kind of uh, neither here nor there kind of prison area, a low technological uh, lacuna in this advanced society. And of course that's, you know, zones are a uh, preoccupation mm -hmm. with alien crash site, but also with SFI, it, you know, in, in, in as much as it considers itself to inhabit a kind of theoretical zone in which <laughs> okay. things are, okay. are, are not completely worked out. So, okay, so uh, Michael, just uh, before you go to yeah. the alien crash, like, so but let me talk about that, the, particularly the zone issue. Um, so um, the, the, um, this was in part an exploration of the concept of, you know, how do we use our technology? Because this is a futuristic book, and I mentioned some of those technologies, and that sounds a little crazy and not very human. But, you know, what is fundamental to humanity? And that's where the characters end up in this place where they have to start anew. Um, I don't know if you noticed that um, this, this book has many layers, okay? It's, uh, you know, like um, there's some famous uh, characters said something, it's like an onion, it has many layers. I think that was Shrek, you know? <laughs> but, but uh, uh, one of the layers, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's essentially an allegory of the Adam and Eve story. Well, it's, okay. I think it's uh, no, no question as to why when, when, when Joe finds himself suddenly rethinking his perspective on the world, it's out of a love for a woman named Evie and everything that's capable <laughs> showing him, including sharing food with him. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right, right, right. And, 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 you know, um, you have to start civilization over in some sense here and rebuild and it. And in isolation. And, Sorry. And in isolation. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Right, right, right. No, I think those are, those are fine spoilers because, because then, you know, where does that lead to? Can, can one, um, do well on one's own. Um, you know, there's a lot of dystopian books today, and uh, and I, I they very they 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 disturb me because they imagine lots of apocalyptic things happen, and then the result is we all get our guns and we hunker down in shelter and we protect our family and we're willing to kill other people. I mean, it's there's there's this 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 very um, um, uh, dystopian. Um, feeling underneath that and it's lacking a morality okay and um you know is that our future i i hope not but i i think the answer is even if you started over you would basically rebuild to something like we have today and you would face the same problems you would face the same problems of complexity and you would have to deal with how we as human beings get along and work together and that's going to let us build this intellectual property, which is, you know, the sum of human genius and, and to and to use it to improve, uh, you know, everything and ultimately to give us purpose. So that's kind of where the zone comes in. Okay, <laughs> But, Michael, I think you wanted to turn to um, Alien Crash, right? <laughs> well, I mean, we only have a few minutes left. I want to make sure that Caitlin gets the. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, technology and its relationship to humanity's future weighs so heavily as a central theme of this text. So it's clearly something you've thought about. The difference between your yes. text is that it's a little more plausible than life after an alien visitation, at least these days <laughs> with all of our science out seeking the, the very exoplanets you describe. Um, so before we get there, I wonder if there's even a relation, but you had talked about how you have this sort of optimistic thought that humanity will sort of, if they collectively attest to their damages, uh, collect to resolve those and that technology could help in that endeavor. Obviously technology allows us to communicate along very broad distances now. So when you think about a future that is, you know, crossing this chasm of individuality into a collective endeavor. Do you think that technology is a way through that? And if so, you know, how do you imagine that to be the case? And then I'll ask you about aliens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's um, a way through it in terms of, uh, you know, our biggest challenge is climate change. 
um, you know, we're going to need to do that. Um, we're going to need to use our technology to figure out um, um, answers to that problem. And we're going to have to solve it, and we're going to live with consequences in any case. The question is just how how difficult they make uh, human life in the next many centuries ahead of us. So, um, but, but I think, um, you know, lots of speculative fiction overemphasizes technology and we're human and we've had a million years of evolution and those things that make us human um, will remain unchanged. And so I think in the story, you'll realize the characters relate as humans that we can relate to. So it's, it's not a weird world. It's, it's just feels like today in many ways. So. Right. But it does seem like there's this really lovely separation between the, the lovers, let's say the two protagonists and then actually the rest of the world, some of their friends who are engaged in some interesting social justice uh, work as well. But um, there's something about the removal from that technological world that causes a sort of reinvigoration of, uh, or I guess a recalibration of behavior that I think is really kind of at the, the heart of how we might address climate change too. We obviously will need to technologically innovate ourselves out of it, but if we can sort of uh, conjoin collectively in a, in a recalibration of the way that we behave in the world that we occupy, that would certainly be helpful too. So I'm not sure that it's not a coupled solution. Okay. But, Although, but uh, so, it's also true yeah, that D David yeah, Krakauer's recent reflection on his, his optimistic assessment of collective behavior yeah, I guess as, in response to the pandemic, he's yeah. like, "Well, I've I've kind of given up hope that we're capable." But yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe Gary hasn't. Gary, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> well, 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 I think I think you know, COVID's done a lot of things for us. It I let caused a lot of people to reassess, you know, how they live and what things that they value, right? And and you know, some people don't want to go back to those terrible jobs they had before. And and um, you know, now let's just fast forward our lives, you know say pre-COVID, you know, where we have too many things coming at us, right? We have too much social media. We have too many things to do. We're on this treadmill. So many of the people on this planet are on the treadmill, right? And that's our life. And um, is that inevitable? What will happen in the future when we have even more intrusive, you know, technology? We'll have less privacy. We'll have less uh, headspace that we can actually think or not, because we're going to have to make that choice ourselves. So um, so I think part of the zone part of the book was to maybe have one think about that in your own life and, and you know, what do we want as human beings? So, but it's not, it's not just, it's, the answer is not just technology. So No, right. And that I at the center of us is not certainly interested in technology. I mean, the, one of the first things the protagonist of this book does is separate himself from his Siri. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Like that's right. Laying the foundation. <laughs> Uh, that's right so yeah. yeah okay let's turn to let's turn to roadside picnic which sure. i thought is a great book i you know i have read the novel uh recently you know it's it's um uh it does uh i love it because it cuts down some of the standard tropes about what will happen with first contact with some other species you know the tropes include you know the war of the worlds where they come and kill us or um you know um star trek where you know you have after the creation of warp drive the vulcans come and they come in logic and peace right so right, we're all best friends. Uh, this, yeah, they're all the, this, this is, uh, I think, this is just, a, 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 I think, a very amusing other take. So, you know, the, the aliens land, they sort of have a roadside picnic. We must be like mere ants, not even worth trying to communicate with. And then they leave and they have all this detritus left, which we can't understand because the technology is so advanced. So, you know, I mean, I think that's great. Uh, I think that th this is a book written um, by some um, really good Soviet um, uh, science fiction writers. And I think it more talks to uh, life in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. Absolutely. So, and, and as so, I mean, that's great. Yeah. Your, and your text, yeah. as you said, is multi-layers. I think that um, it's, it's good to have these sort of analog explorations of the contemporary time that one lives within. So yes, I yes. think that the Strugatsky brothers are really touching upon that sort of Soviet lifestyle in this very like, terribly con condensed economy that's really all about <laughs> what they cannot understand this other has done to their space, even though they want to, and even though it may have been friendly. Um, okay, great. Well, that was a fabulous synopsis. Now I have to ask you the alien crash site question. Gary, okay. at the risk of imprisonment, great personal injury, <laughs> even death, what object would you hope to uncover from an alien crash site? Okay. So uh, my object is I would like to discover the equivalent of a credit card. Okay. 
And this is a credit card that, you know, you can, it's readable, decipherable, you can pull out the code and we could have the world's computer scientists digging through it and trying to figure out what it actually says. And what we're really looking for is one fact. It's in our credit cards, what's the default rate? Okay. Because the default rate, I mean, for humans in credit cards, it's about 1%. Okay. And the reason why that's so important is that tells us something about the species honesty. Okay. Because if that rate is really little, then we can rest with some sigh of relief that when and if they come back, and they're not going to kill us. <laughs> and if it's really high, then we'll know we can't trust them and we'll be figuring out how to arm ourselves, whatever we can do. <laughs> so, because I think, and I think in alien contact, the, 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 the trustworthiness of the other species is so paramount, right, to, to how that relationship will go. So. Right. And it seems that if we have that default rate, were we able to decipher it as you, I think, optimistically suggested we might be able to, what I think we'd glean is how much these individuals trust each other <laughs> and then, yeah. if the rate is very yes. high we realize that there's some contention there so if they're not even cohesive in the same way that we're not cohesive you know oh boy watch out but but isn't that in some sense perhaps an evolutionarily determined statistic about humans well now i'm, I'm thinking about uh paul smaldino's work on the evolution of covert signaling the way that that telling a lie is kind of an evolutionarily stable strategy. It, you know, it finds mm -hmm. its level in a given society, but it's like adjacent to the, the, I, I honestly, you know, given the amount of time that you spend on the philosophical question of the mental, you know, the, 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 the where we are going to find an interior, you know, a subject, mm -hmm. um, I kind of expected, you know, there's a there was a way to twist this, and maybe we can just ask you the same question twice. There's a way to to twist this so that it reflects upon your book and the the question of you know some some first contact stories like Peter Watts's novel Blind Sight propose that you know we're, what we're actually going to meet when we meet an extraterrestrial intelligence are their robots basically, and then <laughs> yes. you know I mean that seems likely given our current trajectory. Give, you know you talk about that sending robots out for exploration. I, 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 to, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I think, but but uh, hopefully the robots, well, presumably the robots will be programmed by those species and that that programming will reflect their own uh, moral um, fundamental code. And so, you know, humans, for example, where did altruism come from? And there's been a lot of research onto trying to explain how that might arise through evolution, right? And it's a little bit of a quirky thing to think how that happens. It's sort of like uh, the springbok is a is a creature um, um, in Africa, and it turns out um, that when the springboks are surprised by a lion or something, one of them jumps up and down in place. Okay. And all the other ones run like hell. And that one's most likely to be eaten. So how does that happen? <laughs> that, that that trait gets evolutionarily, uh, you know, conserved, right? So, uh, but, you know, in human, in human evolution, somehow things like altruism and, and all of those traits have come about. So that says something about who we are. So, yeah. Um, and it seems to me that you think a lot about these sort of like anomalous uh, emergent evolutionary traits against competition. And so um, yes, yeah, this is yeah. almost, you know, I, I don't want to say that maybe a high alien default rate would suggest that actually these aliens are are fine. They trust because they know that there's some sort of a contract in place that, but like either way, it's like, you buy your house, buy your spaceship, go visit Earth, even though it's totally boring. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I don't know what... Do you yeah. think, I mean, you give the, the Springbok as an example, but you you seem to suggest that there's a lot more of it in humans. And I wonder why. I think so. Yeah. Why yeah, would that be? What so. is the distinction that might separate the human yeah. from having that a little more and demonstrating it more often, uh, perhaps these aliens too, than than the animal kingdom from which it, it emerged? Well, I don't know. I, I, as I, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I'm I tend to be more of an optimist about, yeah. uh, you know, in the um, in the in the bubonic death black uh, plague of the of the um, 13th century, I mean, we lost, you know, huge percentages of the population of Western Europe. And yet we um, continued, right? And we continue. Um, we, we persevere against all kinds of things. And, um, you know, this climate change, human-caused climate change is one more example, and I think we'll figure it out. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll, um, 
you know, we'll, we'll come to that idea that community is important, that the only way we solve these problems is to work together. Uh, it's going to be complex. It's going to be a nonlinear century. And how we get from where we are across that chasm of lots of robotics, um, very few jobs, you know, how do you find purpose? How do we make sure that people don't sink into using synthetic drugs and, and you know, um, anesthetize themselves from their, um, you know, from their hopelessness of their life? All those things are, I think, are real issues. Uh, but I'm, I have some hope that we'll get there because uh, think about that world. We'll have lots of stuff. Uh, we'll have met all of the, the needs from um, Maslow's hierarchy. Um, the world will be um, more difficult to live in, but, um, you know, there is a way to solve this. It's not, it's not hopeless. It's and actually, there's a lot of hope for it being a lot better. So Gary, I, I think we have, if I, if I can, Caitlin, I think we have time for yeah, one more quickie, which is okay. elsewhere in, in other interviews and in uh, the piece that you wrote about your book for the good men project, you bring up the fact that, yeah, most people writing science fiction before the iPhone didn't include the iPhone, that this was a kind of a singularity in its own mm -hmm. right that, you know, that linear projections tend to fail us. But in the same piece, you also said, perhaps we should focus on the much more highly likely march of existing technological curves. So as we would expect from someone affiliated with SFI, you appear to contradict yourself. You know, <laughs> like you're, you're both arguing for and against the surprise, basically. And, I, and I'm curious, you know, just uh, maybe as a, a kind of a, a parting volley, what would surprise you the most? Like what, what do you think cuts against your own uh, expectations of probability about the future, be it the future that you write in this book or, or, or otherwise. Okay. Well, so the, the, yeah, there is, there is some um, uh, kind of uh, dissonance in, in those answers. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm arguing against what I see in a lot of um, science fiction today is that as I started off in our beginning uh, to take everything to the absurd and so much of the conversation is focused on those absurd things you know uploading brains um, all this kind of crazy stuff about robots and that's just nonsense that's not going to happen anytime soon because I would argue because of evolution and, and as I said about the way we've evolved uh, it's probably not going to ever happen right um, Neuralink is going to be a tiny um, bit of technology to help people with um, various kinds of impairments, but it's not going to be mainstream. We won't be doing that. So, but let's focus on where the technology will likely take us. Within that parameter, as we know from Santa Fe Institute, uh, it's so complex. There's lots of nonlinearities. Um, so, what kinds of nonlinearities? Well, um, Isaac Asimov in the Foundation trilogy talks about a world that covers 10,000 years. He, too, was writing about his own time, you know, World War II <laughs> and Hitler. And um, there's this um, crazy anomalous guy who uh, disrupts everything. And so the psycho historians and all their wonderful predictions um, couldn't predict because of the nonlinearity. That is so true, right? We know that um, because of what we've learned at the Santa Fe Institute and understanding the theory. So um, this century, um, how will we, I'm pointing to what I think are the major uh, issues that will create a chasm and we have to cross those. Can we as humankind uh, do that successfully? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't, I think that we have a bigger possibility of, of being successful if we focus all of these bright minds on those right problems and not get distracted. So. What an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Thank you, Gary, both for your support and for writing an interesting book. I feel like we really only just kind of danced across the surface of this text. And yeah. I had like a whole page of questions we didn't have time for. <laughs> but, uh, well, but thank well, you for taking this time. And we've missed some other things, you know, it, as I said, it won uh, Unfettered Journey. You can find it wherever you find books. Um, um, it's won six awards, including Best Spiritual um, Book of 2020. Um, and uh, so there's an entire um, part of the, the thing that talks about, um, you know, how we find purpose in um, this rapidly changing 
world. So um, I, I would love to have more readers to continue this discussion. And thank you, uh, Michael and Caitlin. Gary, thank you so much for coming and for encouraging individuals to seek out whatever that purpose is, because I think the encouragement is really serious um, and necessary in, in a time when I think people are becoming sort of like specialists in something that isn't their own fulfillment necessarily. It's very inspiring. Um, and thank you for your alien crash site object. We never <laughs> find evidence of any dark credits, but that's okay. We have a credit card. <laughs> I, I'm actually now afraid of a first contact scenario in which we find the credit card of an alien race with a 75% default rate. Like, why do you even <laughs> have right. credit? What is this? That's fixed in paying their debt. And that's why they're on, they're on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> they just foisted it off on us. It's like, yes. no, Gary, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks a lot. This was really fun. Yeah. Cool. And, and um, yeah. Oh, great. And Michael, yeah, yeah, we did cover some other topics that we haven't explored before. This, so this is great. So Awesome. And um, I think I think we've also um, added a few more comments on Santa Fe Institute that we than I normally get to. So that's great. That's great.